going to your book a little bit, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, pick up going back to that first thought. Standing up means voluntarily accepting the burden of being. Your nervous system responds in an entirely different manner when you face the demands of life voluntarily. You respond to a challenge instead of bracing for a catastrophe. You see the gold the dragon hoards instead of shrinking in terror from the all too real fact of the dragon. You step forward to take your place in the dominance hierarchy and occupy your territory, manifesting your willingness to defend, expand, and transform it. To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. The reason I pulled that one out in particular is the feeling that you have as a soldier or as as a military person, the feeling that you have going on an offensive operation where let's say you're a bad guy and I'm going to come and get you. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, first of all, you don't know. And I'm sneaking up on you. And I have all this power, right? I, I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get you. Mm-hmm. The opposite of that is when I'm doing a convoy or I'm going on a patrol where now the bad guys are out there. They're waiting to attack me. And that is a defensive posture. And your attitude about that type of thing is bad. Now, we would train our guys that we, we made a specific point with my guys. I would say, look, when you're on patrol, we're on offense, mm-hmm. we are scanning, we are looking to get the to get us to be standing up straight and to get the mentality of we wanna do this and we're moving towards the target as opposed to we're being chased. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. It, 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 yeah, absolutely, that's a big deal. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, what would you say? That's an extreme example of what's necessary under normal conditions in life. So well, one of the things that happens if you're treating someone who has a phobia, say like agoraphobia, so they become afraid of virtually everything. Um, maybe they're afraid of an elevator. It's one of many fears. And so you think, well, and they're afraid of an elevator because they've actually gone in elevators and had panic attacks. So it's weird because what you do to cure them is to get them to go in elevators. And you think, well, wait a second, that's actually what caused the problem. So how can getting them to do that again make it better? And the answer is because they've gone in elevators their whole life, right? And yet they still become terrified. So how can getting them to go in an elevator cure them? For a long time, people thought, well, you'd get them to relax while they were in the elevator, and the pairing of the relaxation with being in the elevator taught them to not be afraid. That was the first theory. But then people learned that, no, you could just get them to go in the elevator without having them relax, and it also worked. And eventually, psychologists sorted this out, and what they figured out was that voluntarily encountering something you're afraid of is not the same thing as running from it. Like, it's seriously not the same thing. So you say to the person, okay, you're afraid of the elevator. Let's... Can you go look at an elevator? And they usually say yes. And maybe they're so terrified because they're so far gone in their illness that they can't. You say, well, how about we look at a bunch of pictures of elevators? And it's like virtually everyone can do that. So we say, let's look at pictures of elevators till you're bored. That actually doesn't take very long because it's actually quite boring. So then the next thing would be, well, let's go. You have to have the person trust you. And so the rule is, look, we're going to do some things that are going to push you like competition, right. but you can stop whenever you want and we're not going to push you any farther than is good for you. And I'll stop anytime you want. I often practice with my clients, like I taught one client a while back to not be afraid of needles and he was afraid of needles. And I'll tell you what that meant. He had dental surgery with no anesthesia, oh. right? Okay, so that gives you some level of what it's like to be afraid. It's like, I'll do the dental surgery, but you're not putting that needle in there. It's like, really? Wow. It's like, I'm no needles. <laughs> so, so I taught him how to not be afraid of, of needles, you know, and it, it didn't take very long. But the first thing I did, I said, I told him I was going to bring a needle into the office. And that was all I told him the first week is next week, I'm going to bring a needle in here, and I'm going to keep it sheathed. 
and it's going to be sitting on a shelf and that's where I'm going to put it and when you come in here you can look at it and if you want me to put it away then I'll put it away it's under your control and then so he was okay with that so he came in I said there's the needle I said you want to look at it he said no he said, but can you it's like I'll look at it so he looked at it and then he said look like I'm going to pick up the needle and now what you're going to do is you're going to tell me to put it down and I'm going to put it down so I picked it up and he got nervous like right away and he said, will you put that down? I put it down right away. I said, we do that 10 times so that the bottom part of your nervous system actually knows that that's what's going to happen. He said, now, and then the next thing we'll do is we're going to practice you saying you've had enough and leaving the office. So I pick up the needle and he'd say, okay, so now you say you've had enough, I'm leaving. And so he said that and then I'd let him leave. We did that like 10 times so that he knew that he could just say he'd had enough and leave. So that meant he didn't have to be a prey animal, right? So we were getting him out of that mode. And it didn't take very long until, well, then I could bring the needle close to him. And I said, make sure you watch it. You can't pretend it's not there, right? I'll bring it close to him and touch it and touch him with the sheathed needle. So we did that a bunch. And then finally, I unsheathed it and I'd bring it close. And he'd tolerate that or stop me. And then I'd touch him with that. And then the last part of it was that um, I put it under a piece of paper so he couldn't see it. And then I'd bring it close to him. Right, because that was, that was the unknown, right? You don't know what the hell is going on underneath the piece of paper. But he got to the point where he could go and have a needle. It took him about, it was very brave of him to do this, because, well, what had happened, he got, what had happened to him is he had a very bad experience with the childhood dentist who held him down. I was about to say, yeah, where held him did down. this come oh, from? Oh, yeah, held him, six people held him down to give him a needle. It's mm. like, <laughs> it wasn't so good. It had some long-term consequences. But see what happened. So when you, when you do that with people, you don't teach them to be less afraid. You teach them to be braver. That's different. And so, like, I had a client once, the doors opened on the elevator, and she looked in and she said, that's death. Like, that's a tomb. And I thought, wow, that's an amazing response. And her idea was she'd go in there, her heart rate would accelerate, she'd have a heart attack, and she'd die. So as far as she was concerned, walking in there was death, death. right? Okay, so for me it was an elevator, but for her it was death. It's like, okay, well, what do you do about your fear of death? Well, we're not getting rid of that. It's like... <laughs> You know, and you could die in the elevator. You actually could. Probably you won't, but people do die in elevators. And her idea was that, well, if anyone has ever died in an elevator in the history of mankind, that's a good reason for me not to be in the elevator. It's like, fair enough, you know. And then why aren't you terrified of, out of your skull all the time? Because while you're wandering around, you might have a heart attack. Like, that will probably, in fact, happen to you at some point. So why aren't you terrified of that at every moment? Well, that's the mystery. Well, so you treat people. And, and you see, with that client, what I eventually did with her is we went and watched an embalming. She was terrified of death, like date seriously. Night. Yeah, date <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. Right, no kidding. But, you know, so you, get, you don't get less afraid. You get braver. That's better because there's plenty of things to be afraid of. We're back with clinical psychologists Dr. Jordan Peterson and Stacy and Tracy are also with us. They say their marriage is in trouble. And today we're asking the question, are you sabotaging your relationship without even knowing it? Stacey, I was caught off guard when you said that you'd actually already printed out the divorce papers. Why haven't you signed them? Because there's always that hope. There's always the glimmer of hope that we can change. My heart's still in it. I just don't know how to put the pieces back together to make it right. Dr. Peterson, this is a, a challenge that I think we're seeing all over the country. You're an expert in this area. so. I well, hand the ball to you. Well, there's lots of things that are positive about your relationship that are obvious right away. I mean, the first is, is that you have the grounds of real friendship. The second is you both actually appear to want this to work. I think a lot of your problem is actually practical, to tell you the truth. 
and, and I would say it's also not so much a matter of global change. It's like I see things that aren't, that aren't working in your marriage that will sink a marriage. So, for example, people need to talk to each other for about 90 minutes a week just about what they're doing in their lives and their problems. You need that. And you need to have a date like at least once a week and probably twice a week. It's absolutely crucial. And then it's also the same with reestablishing a romantic bond. It's like you're not romantically entangled right now because you're alienated from one another. And you might not want to get close physically. But this isn't a matter of wanting to, to begin with. It's a matter of having to in order to rekindle what's going on in your relationship. And so I would say, and the last thing I would say is, it's probably useful for you guys to sit down and figure out how to distribute the duties in your life, because it's a big part of your life. And I would say to what you should do practically, since you do appear to like each other and you want the relationship to work, is to start micro-negotiating, so you know who's responsible for what. And you want to fight and argue about that till you get it straight. I've heard you say that, that don't agree to things you don't agree to. Yeah, yeah well, that's a great, that's a great negotiation. Is, is that something you think is happening? Do you feel like that, either of you? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so here's a hint about that. So... Um, it's okay to say no to things. You, you want to only say yes to things that you agree with, especially when you realize you're going to repeat them endlessly. Right? So you have a right to say no. If you're an agreeable person, then, which is a personality trait associated with warmth and compassion, it's really easy to try to please someone else. And you can tell if you're doing that too much if you get resentful. You know how terrible that is. And so even though it's a battle to do that negotiation, it's way better than ending up in the situation that you're in. What about really small things? Well, that's, that's another thing, you know. Uh, People think, well, we shouldn't fight. It's like, no, you should fight a lot, but you should make up. So you fight because there's problems. Like, who should do what? That's a big problem. How are we going to handle our finances? That's a big problem. How are we going to handle our mutual careers and the trouble of, of having children? Of course you're going to argue about that because you don't see things the same way. Mm -hmm. Think, well, but what you want to do is you want to argue towards peace. Fight, make up, make peace, make an agreement, move forward. And then fight again. And then fight again. Yeah. Well, eventually, what will happen? <laughs> the fights will get farther apart, and then they'll decrease in, deep, in intensity. That's what will happen. Okay. But that can take a long time. Be sure to subscribe to my channel so you don't miss anything. And remember to check back often to see what's new. We've all found ourselves in conversation and felt attacked. Like, we started off talking about one thing, and then the other person twisted our words, and before we knew it, we lost our cool, lost respect in their eyes, and maybe even acted like a jerk. Now, I don't normally do the same person twice in a row, but this interview between Kathy Newman and Jordan Peterson was just too interesting of an opportunity to discuss how you can handle someone who uses subtle conversational tricks to bully you into looking dumb. So in this video, you're going to see firsthand some of the most common tricks that people might be using on you, and you're also going to learn how to reverse those so that you can walk out of a kind of aggressive situation having earned more respect than you had going in. So first off, to stop a conversational bully, you have to realize what's going on before it's too late. Now typically a person will reveal their aggressive attitude early on with their tone of voice and their word choice, kind of like this. But it's not, I wasn't specifically aiming this message at young men to begin with. It just kind of turned out that way. But... And it's mostly, you admit, it's mostly men listening. In this case, Kathy is indicating very clearly that she thinks Jordan has done something wrong. Otherwise, why would she use the word admit? She makes her stance clear a moment later when she implies that he should be bothered for being divisive. Just watch. Does it bother you that your audience is predominantly male? Does that, isn't 
Isn't that a bit divisive? The point here is that even when they're being passive aggressive, people will often indicate that they're about to attack you before they actually do. So if you hear someone say something like, well, what do you have to say for yourself? Be prepared. That person thinks that you've done something wrong and you need to be very careful what you say next. Not because you did do something wrong, but because a conversational bully may be trying to trap you into saying something that you disagree with so that they can attack that straw man. And the first way that this often happens is called the so you're saying trap. Here's what it looks like. So you're saying women have some sort of duty to sort of help fix the crisis of masculinity. Which women want to dominate. Is that what you're saying? No, right. I... So you're saying that anyone who believes in equality, whether you call them feminists, call them whatever you want to call them, should basically give up because it ain't going to happen. Let me just get this straight. You're saying that we should organize our societies along the lines of the lobsters. The general pattern here is that someone says, so you're saying, and then proceeds to oversimplify or mischaracterize what you actually said. I won't spend too long here because it's very easy to spot and it's rather simple to avoid and get around by saying, well, actually what I was saying is, and then repeat yourself. Along the lines of the lobsters. I'm saying that it's inevitable that there will be continuity in the way that animals and human beings organize it organize their structures. But there's a much sneakier way that people may mischaracterize your beliefs and then attack them. Basically, it's when someone's words imply that you believe something you don't and they don't actually say it. So in business, they call this assuming the sale. Like when a car salesman says, so would you like that with the leather interior or with the fabric interior before you've even decided to buy the car? Now, with a several thousand dollar purchase, you're likely to notice this and say, whoa, 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 who said I was buying in the first place? But it's very likely that this is happening to you in conversation all the time and you don't even notice. Here's how it might look. Yeah, but those reasons, why, why should women put up with those reasons? Embedded in the question, why should women put up with it, are several important presuppositions, namely one, that there is something to put up with, and two, that Jordan thinks women should put up with it. Now, the trap here for Jordan would be to answer Kathy's question directly, and many of us fall into it in similar situations. Then we start arguing for things that we don't even really believe, just out of habit. Instead, you need to identify that hidden presupposition and then call it out. So watch how carefully Jordan listens to Kathy's questions so that he can catch what she's not saying. Why should, Why should women, women be content not, not to get I'm not saying that they should put up with it. I'm saying that the claim... Here's another example of assuming the sale from later in that conversation. See if you can spot the hidden presupposition and ask yourself what you might say to respond to it. Which women do a lot of. But why shouldn't women have the right to choose not to have children? So what's the hidden presupposition? That Jordan thinks women must have children. And of course, he defends a woman's right to make any decision about that that she wants. The right to choose they, those they, demanding careers. They do. They can. Yeah, that's fine. But you're saying that makes them unhappy. Here's one more example. See if you can spot the hidden presupposition here. So I you're not going to say to your followers now, quit the abuse, quit the anger. Did you catch it? The presupposition is that Jordan's followers are abusing people. Now, he can't answer that question directly. He has to address that hidden point first, and he does. Well, we'd need some substantial examples of the abuse and the anger before I could detail that question. There's a lot of it out so there. When I cut the clips like this, it makes it very easy to see these hidden presuppositions. But in real time, this can be difficult. One simple thing that you can do to make it easier on yourself is to purposely assume a relaxed posture, as Jordan does throughout this entire conversation. Now, this posture actually helps you to think less frantically because your body is signaling to your brain that everything is okay, you're in control. You'll also want to give yourself some time to pause after each question, which Jordan definitely does. In addition, you're going to want to study up on frames and frame 
games because there's a, clearly a whole level of conversation that is going on behind the words. Now, I've talked about this in other videos, specifically the one on Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones, and I'll leave a link to that in the description if you want to check it out. Moving along, though, the last clip contains a small example of the third conversational bully tactic in this video, which I'm naming the smash technique. Take a look. So you're not going to say to your followers safe. now. Quit the abuse, quit the anger. It's subtle here, but Kathy smashes together two very different terms, abuse and anger. Now, by ending on anger, it'd be easier for Jordan to just forget it and answer the question, but that would tacitly accept that his followers were abusing people. That's why the smash technique is so frustrating. People are embedding hidden statements that you actually disagree with and then moving through them before you have the time to voice that disagreement. You may also have seen people barrage you with questions just to overwhelm you into having to accept their points like this. Otherwise, why would there only be seven women running FTSE 100 companies in the UK? Why, why would there still be a pay gap, which we've discussed? Oh, well, easy, why are women at the BBC saying that they're getting paid illegally less than men? It can be easy to get overwhelmed and to lose focus as you try to answer all of these questions. But with the smash technique in general, the best policy is to slow down the tempo of conversation and tackle one question or one point at a time. Do the same job. Well, That's not fair, well, is let's it? Let's go to the first question. They're both are complicated questions. So hopefully now you're more aware of the so you're saying trap when people assume the sale and of course the smash technique. This moves us to the second section of this video, which is how to persuade someone in these kinds of situations. And I will say, it seems to me that it doesn't look like Jordan is necessarily trying to change Kathy's mind, but simply to debate in front of an audience. There are still some valuable tips to be gleaned from this video and a few things that I'd add. First, do not strawman the other person's ideas, even if they're doing it to you. And to be clear, I don't know if I mentioned this, strawmanning is when you create a caricature of their ideas and then attack those rather than what they truly believe. Instead, show the other person that you are truly engaging in their real points. Attempt to understand them. And sometimes this means that you have to ask them to repeat themselves so that you can. Seven. Seven women, re repeat that one. There's seven women running the top FTSE 100 companies in the UK. Okay. Well, the I first, mean, the first question might be... After you've made an honest attempt to understand them, you need to make sure that they can understand you, which is necessary for persuasion. And to do that, you often have to use visual imagery. For instance, here's a very abstract point without any images that Jordan makes. That it's inevitable that there will be continuity in the way that animals and human beings organize, organize their structures. It's, it's absolutely inevitable. And there is one third of a billion years of evolutionary history behind that. Now, maybe you can understand that, but it kind of lacks any emotional oomph. But notice how the addition of a concrete example makes that one third of a billion years just feel different. Right, that's, that's so long that a third of a billion years ago, there weren't even trees. It's a long time. So adding concrete examples, especially ones that people can easily imagine, is a smart, persuasive move. And lastly, when you're arguing, oftentimes the best way to get someone to change their position is not by changing their mind, but by gently showing them that they're already agreeing with you. I talk about this in the frame video, but here's an example from this interview. Why should your right to freedom of speech trump a trans person's right not to be offended? Because in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offensive. I mean, look at the conversation we're having right now. You know, like you're certainly willing to risk offending me in the pursuit of truth. Why should you have the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable. This is huge. Jordan is no longer arguing that her point is wrong. He's arguing that she already agrees with him. Her behavior and her previous statements demonstrate that she cares more about free speech than not offending people. And then Jordan doesn't try to make this point wrong. He shows her how they're actually very much in alignment. You're doing what you should do, which is digging a bit to see what the hell's going on. 
So and that you, is what you should do. But you're you exercising your freedom of speech to certainly risk offending me. And that's fine. I think more power to you as far as I'm concerned. And then, of course, Kathy feels stumped because she does actually agree with Jordan and she's proven it herself. People have a strong desire to remain consistent with things they've already said and done. So oftentimes this becomes one of the few ways to persuade someone who's really dug in their heels. You're basically showing them that they don't have to move in order to agree with you. They already do right where they're dug in. And then, of course, Jordan hits her with the gotcha. Uh, and... I'm just trying. I'm just trying to work that out. I mean, ha, gotcha. You have got me. You have got. Now, even though I laughed at that phrase at the time I was watching the interview, I have to say that last bit, gotcha, does not improve Jordan's persuasive case. It actually makes Kathy feel silly and wrong, as opposed to happy to discover that she and Jordan are really on the same team all along. And if I had to give one last point of constructive criticism, it would be that Jordan answered all of Kathy's questions rather than trying to proactively address her deeper unstated emotional concern. And in my opinion, that emotional concern is that Jordan is her enemy, that if he believes something, it must be against her interests. If Jordan could have found that and pointed to a more common ground that they share, which we all of course have, I don't think the interview would have continued in such an argumentative fashion. But Jordan's role isn't necessarily to convince Kathy Newman of anything, it's to debate for an audience and to promote his book, which I think he did at an A plus level. If you think that I missed something or you just want to discuss, leave a comment below. I'm actually going to be checking periodically, but I will be most active in the comments for that first hour after the video goes live, which is now 2 p.m. Eastern on Mondays. So hit subscribe and hit the notification bell to make sure that you're notified when I'm here and chatting. That way you can hop on if you want to discuss anything with me or if you have a question that you'd like to ask. I also think that this video makes a very strong companion for both the Tyrion video that I mentioned about frames, which are super interesting, and the previous Jordan Peterson video, which will teach you how to get respect without being a bully. So click the screen if you want to check either of those out. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this video, and I will see you in the next one. Look, let's say you're socially anxious. Okay, so what happens when you're socially anxious? You go to a party, your heart's beating. Why? The party is a monster. Why? Because it's judging you. And it's judging you, it's putting you low down the dominance hierarchy, because that's what a negative judgment is. And that interferes with your sexual so success. And that means that you're being harshly evaluated by nature itself. Right? So you are confronting the, the dragon of chaos when you go into the social situation. And so what do you do? You're like this. Right? You hunch over, and that's low dominance. I'm no threat. It's like, oh, that's not going to get you very far. You know, but that's a logical thing to do in, in, the, in, in the face of a tyrant. So I'm no threat. You, know, you look at the king and you're dead. I'm no threat. I'm hunched over. And then what's happening internally? How, what are people thinking about me? What are people thinking about me? Am, am I looking stupid? Am I looking foolish? Geez, I'm awkward. I hate being here. Man, I'm sweating too much. It's all internalized, right? It's all self-focused. The, the, the eye isn't work. The eye isn't working. What do you tell people? Stop. Don't stop thinking about yourself, because you can't. It's like, don't think of a white elephant. White elephant, white elephant, white elephant. You can't tell someone to stop thinking about something because they get caught in the loop. What you do with socially anxious people is you say, look at other people. Look at them, right? Why? Because if you look at them, you can tell what they're thinking. And then you, you're, unless, you're, unless you're terribly socialized, and some people are, some people have no social skills. And so the reason they can't go to a party is because they don't even know how to introduce themselves. Like they're just, no one ever taught them how to behave. And so they're really good candidates for behavior therapy, because you walk them through the process of how you actually 
manifest the procedures that are associated with social acceptability. But most people aren't like that. They have the ability. So if they're really introverted and high in neuroticism, they can usually talk quite well to someone one-on-one. -on -one. Why? Because they look at them. Well, if I look at you, it's another thing to do if you're ever speaking to a group of people. Never speak to the group of people. It doesn't exist. You talk to individuals. And then they reflect for you the entire group, because they're all entrained. If you look at one person, they broadcast to you what everyone's thinking, and you know how to talk to one person. So it's easy. So as soon as you focus on the person, not you, you push your attention outward, you use your eye, you push your attention outward, and you start watching. Well, then all your automatic mechanisms kick in, and you stop being awkward. Because if we're talking, and I'm looking here, I don't know what you're going to do next. And I'm going to put disjunctions into the, like, they're like uh, bad chords in the melody of our, of our conversation. And the reason is I'm not paying attention. So that's why the eye is the thing at the top of the pyramid. It's like the thing that enables you to win the set of all possible dominance hierarchies is the eye. Pay attention. Pay attention. That's the critical issue. That's why the Egyptians worshipped Horus. That's why Horus was the thing that rescued Osiris from the, from the depths. It's the capacity to pay attention. What do you pay attention to most? What your right hemisphere signals as anomalous. It, it, it attracts your attention. It's like, this isn't going quite right. I'm not looking at that. Wrong. That's what you look at. That's what you look at. What's not going right. Because that's, see, that's the terrible monster that might eat you, but it's also the place you get all the information. So that's why it's useful to have discussions with your enemies. Because they will tell you things you do not know. And that's such a great thing, because if you don't know them, well, you're not very smart, are you? You know, there may be a time when you go somewhere, that that's the thing you need to know. And maybe your enemy will tell you why you're such a fool. You know, and a bunch of other things that aren't true, too. But even one thing that's accurate, it's like, yeah, thanks very much, man. Maybe I'll do some work on that, and I won't have to carry that forward. So, and then that's part of the reason, again, why the terrible predator, it's always the terrible predator that has the gold. It's like, it's the person who delivers the message you do not want to hear. So it's rough. It's rough. But it doesn't matter. Life is rough. That's a way more common problem than people think. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because you do have, you hear this, all we hear about, not all we hear about, much of what we hear about is the dominant rape culture, you know, and the implication is hyper-confident, tyrannical males preying on women. It's like, well, there are a handful of men like that. They're <coughs> psychopathic. There are definitely men like that. But the terrorized type is way, way more common. And it's, it's a way larger problem among young men than, than, than you guess by how much attention it gets. Maybe it's because young men don't like to talk about it very much, but the, the probability that a young man will be struck rather, uh, what, paralyzed by terror when he encounters a woman who he really admires and is attracted to is very, very high. And part of the reason for that is that the probability of rejection is extremely high. So, and, you know, that's his problem. He has to overcome that. Um, you know, did you ever watch the, the movie Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. Okay, so there's a great scene. That's a great movie. There, I, I haven't done an analysis of it online, but I would really like to. But the evil queen locks the hero in the dungeon, and then she laughs at him because she's going to keep him there 
sterile and barren until he's old and useless. And that's Mother Nature, man. It's like she'll take a good cold look at you and decide that you're not worth salvaging or propagating. And so, and that's and, and, and that's a very highly probable outcome for men, by the way, because you have twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors. So males fail at reproducing at twice the rate of females, right? It's a big difference. And so now the hero in the Sleeping Beauty decides he's going to go and confront terrible nature, right? Because that's the evil queen. That's the evil queen that the king and queen didn't invite to their daughter's christening at the beginning and doomed her to a kind of cowardly unconsciousness as a consequence. And when he does confront her, she turns into the she turns right into the dragon of chaos itself, right? It's the ultimate challenge. And that's because female rejection is the ultimate challenge. Because what the female says is, you're not good enough. And and it's not like some surface not good enough. You might be fine dead, like you might be of sufficient harmless inadequacy to tolerate now and then as a friend or companion. But fundamentally, you're not good enough. Well, that's a, that's a challenge right to the core. Well, the question is, how do you overcome that challenge? And the answer is by facing it. It's like if, if women reject you, there's something wrong with you. And it's probably something deeply wrong. And you need to do something about it, whatever it is. Now, you know, what do you have to do? Well, you have to develop yourself into the sort of person that can at least have enough courage to start a conversation with a woman. Right? That's a that's a but but there's there's practical issues at, at hand here. So it doesn't have to be just purely metaphysical. Remember what happens in Sleeping Beauty afterwards, say, is that he defeats the dragon with truth and courage. But he still has to hack his way through this incredible maze of thorns and thistles to get to the woman who he then awakens, which is quite interesting. So that's called the crystallization of the anima from the great mother complex in the Jungian scheme of things. And so the hostile female is nature itself that's looking at you and saying, no bloody way. But inside that, there's something that's asleep, that's an individual woman that you could have a relationship with. And if you can get past that, the terror of nature itself, then you can awaken that, that sleeping feminine and have a relationship with an actual woman. Now, it also means to some degree you have to sacrifice your ideal of, well, of the princess itself. You have to settle for an actual woman instead of the ideal of your imagination. That, that's also a big problem, but that's part of the developmental story. And so what men have to do is to well, they have to pay attention to the signals that they're receiving from women. Because if a thousand women think that you're not who you should be, then they're right. right? That's nature itself rendering its judgment. And it's no bloody wonder that people shrink away from that, because it's, it's a fundamental judgment. A creature such as you should not be allowed to propagate. Right? There's nothing more cutting than that. But it's also salutary. So, you know, and some of these pickup guys, they play with this, and they're actually quite smart about it. So I had one guy in my clinical practice, and he was trying to put himself together. He did a pretty good job. You know, he got a hell of a lot tougher his, with his disciplinary practices. He'd started, sort of started out in one of these pickup crowds. And one of the, he had a men's group, and one of the things that they had their young men do was ask 50 women in one day for their phone numbers. Very, very smart. It's exposure training. You know, it's like, 
Of course you're terrified. What the hell's your point? It's like, well, by the 40th woman, maybe somewhat less terrified. And so, and, and you need that. You, you need that. You need to be able to tolerate the rejection and learn from it. And so whatever encouragement can be put forward to allow that to happen in some quasi-civilized way, so much the better. Then you can look at it in a simpler way. Learn to dance, for Christ's sake, so you're not such a klutz. <laughs> well, that's something, man. See if you can figure out how to dress so you don't look like a 10-year-old that's been inflated with a bicycle pump. <laughs> a little bit of grooming doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to have something to bring to the table. It's like, well, you look at yourself and think, well, why should a woman that I would like like me? Well, I don't have any money. I don't have any future. I don't have any education. I'm completely bloody inarticulate. I'm kind of a drunk. I'm mostly a lout. I'm not sophisticated. It's like, yeah, those are problems, man. You should do something about them. And so that's part of the pursuit of an ideal. And it's not hard if you're in rough shape to formulate an ideal that's somewhat better than you are. That's a good start. But that, that the pathway that takes you down the road to bitterness towards women, that's not a good idea. Because a thousand women, a th the judgment of a thousand women about you, roughly speaking, unless they're a mob, is always right. <laughs>
are working as you proceed towards a goal you value. That's completely different. And you need to know this because people are often stunned, for example, they finish their PhD thesis and their presupposition is that they're going to be elated for a month and often instead they're actually depressed and they think, oh, what the hell, I've been working on this for seven years and I handed it in and what do I do now? And, and that's what depresses them, right? It's the what do I do now? Well, they're fine if they enjoyed it pursuing the thing. As long as it was working out, they get a lot of enthusiasm and excitement out of that because that's how our nervous systems work. Most of your positive emotion is goal pursuit emotion. If you take drugs like cocaine or amphetamine, the reason they're enjoyable is because they turn on the systems that help you pursue goals. That's why people like them. So if you don't have a job, you've got no structure, that's not good. Plus, you tend not to have a point. So you're overwhelmed by chaotic lack of structure and you don't have any positive emotion. Well, do you have any friends? So sometimes you see people who are depressed, they have no job, they have no friends, they have no intimate relationship, they have an additional health problem, and they have a drug and alcohol problem. My experience has been if you have three of those problems, it's almost impossible to help you. You're so deeply mired in chaos that you can't get out because you make progress on one front and one of the other problems pulls you down. So one of the things I tell people who are depressed is like, don't sacrifice your stability. Get a job, even if it's not the job you exactly want. Get a damn job, you need a job. Find some friends. Get out in the dating circuit. See if you can establish an intimate relationship. Put together some of the foundational items that, that are like pillars that your life rests on. Well, that's the practical thing to do. So that's one example with regards to depression. Well, the thing is, you don't just launch it on them, you know. You've you got to negotiate with the person. And you also got to teach them to negotiate with themselves. And th this is something that's very useful to know. You know, um, you can tyrannize yourself into doing things, but I wouldn't recommend it. What, what I would recommend instead is that you ask yourself what you're willing to do. It's a really effective technique. It's like a meditative technique. So, for example, you can get up in the morning and you can think, well, you know, I'd like to have a good day today, so I'd like to go to bed tonight without feeling guilty because I, you know, didn't do some things I said I was going to do, and I, you know, I'd like to have kind of an interesting day. So you've got to fulfill my responsibilities, and I want to, you know, enjoy the day. Then you can ask yourself, well, okay, what would I have to do in order for that to happen that I would do? And the probability, if you practice this for three or four days, is your brain will just tell you. It'll say, well, you know, there's that piece of homework that you haven't done for like three weeks. You should knock that sucker off because it would only take you ten minutes. And you've been avoiding it and torturing yourself to death for, you know, like, like 72 hours straight. And if you do that, here's a little interesting thing you can do. And, you know, maybe this is a little obligation you should clean up. And so what, what you do in a situation like that is you teach the person to negotiate with themselves. Say, well, let's figure out what your aims are. You've got to have some aims. Okay? whatever they are. And they might say, well, I'm so depressed I don't have any aims. And then I say, well, pick the least objectionable of the aims and act it out for a while and see what happens. Because sometimes your, your emotional systems are so fouled up that you have to pretend, you have to act the thing out before you can start to believe it. I mean, people always assume they have to believe and then act, but, but that's, sometimes that's true and lots of times it isn't. So the trick, if you're doing therapeutic work with someone and you're helping them establish a structure, is to find out what they'll do. Now, if they want to get better, which is not a given, because there are often payoffs for not getting better. That's basically the payoffs of being a martyr, or maybe the payoffs of doing what your entirely pathological family members want you to do because they actually want you to fail. Assuming you want to get better, there's usually something you can figure out that would constitute a step towards some sort of concrete goal. And my presumption, it's a behavioral presumption fundamentally, is that small accruing gains that repeat are unbelievably powerful. So, you know, in, this is another thing to know about in your own life. It's something I learned in part from reading the writings of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's a great Russian philosopher and novelist. You know, he said, you can look at your life and you can see what isn't right about it. 
I mean, all you have to do is look. And then you can start to fix that. And the way you fix it is by noticing what you could, in fact, fix. You know, people are often trying to fix things they can't fix, which I would not recommend, because if you try to fix something you can't fix, you'll just ruin it. Like, you can find all sorts of undergraduates who are perfectly willing to restructure the, uh, you know, the, the international economic system who cannot keep their room clean. And there's actually a gap there, you know, which, and it's surprising that people don't actually notice. So I would say, if you pay attention, you can see things that you could fix. They yell at you. They really do. We even know how that happens. Let me, let me give you an example, because rooms are full of stories. And the stories have, have effects on you. So here's a classic experiment. So you take two groups of undergraduates. You bring them into your lab. And you give one group uh, a multiple choice test that has a bunch of words in it that are associated with being old. And you give the other group the same multiple choice test, except the words are associated with being young. This is independent of the content of the test. It's just descriptions. And then you time the undergraduates as they walk back to the elevators. The ones who read... The ones who completed the multiple choice test that had more words associated with aging walk slower back to the elevators. And they don't know that. And they don't know they're doing it. And that, that study's been replicated in various forms many, many times. You're unbelievably sensitive to the story that your environment's telling you. Because your environment is not made out of objects. That's just wrong. Your environment is basically made out of something like tools and obstacles. You're a tool-using creature. You're a tool-perceiving creature. The things you... Like, if I take you out of this room and I say, well, what was in the room? You're not going to say... Uh, you know, random patterns in the carpet, because they're, they're real. They're just as good an object as anything else. You're going to say chairs, because you can sit on them. And you're going to say handrails, because you can hold them. You're going to say stairs, because you can walk down them. That's what you see, and that's what you interact with. And if you pay attention to your environment, which is you, by the way, extended. All of your experience is you. It will tell you all the time what you should do. All you have to do is do it. But then you have to decide if you want to do it. One of the things I've noticed about people, because I've wondered, once I started studying these mythological stories, and I got this idea about... The, the fact that life can be meaningful enough to justify its suffering. I thought, God, that's such a good idea. Because it's not optimistic exactly. You know, some people will tell you, well, you can be happy. It's like, those people are idiots. I'm telling you, they're idiots. There's going to be things that come along that flatten you so hard you won't believe it. And you're not happy then. And so if life is to be happy, well, in those situations, what are you doing? Why even live? But that isn't, life isn't to be happy. If you're happy, you're bloody fortunate, and you should enjoy it. You should, because it's the grace of God, so to speak. With regards to, to meaning, I thought, well, people know when they're doing something meaningful. They can tell. So why the hell don't they do meaningful things all the time? It seems obvious. You could do it. I mean, it's hard, you know, because other people want you to do other things. And it's a struggle, but everything's a struggle. And then I thought, well, oh, I get it. I see why. It took me about 10 years to figure this out. People have a choice. Choice number one, nothing you do means anything. Well, that's kind of a drag, right? It's meaninglessness of life and all that existential angst. You know, that's kind of a pain. But the upside of nothing that you do be mean is meaningful is you don't have to do anything. You've got no responsibility. Now, you have to suffer because things are meaningless, but that's a small price to pay for being able to be completely useless. The alternative, the alternative is everything you do matters. Really. If you make a mistake, it's a real mistake. If you betray someone, you tilt the world a little more sharply towards evil rather than good. It matters what you do. Well, if you buy that, then you can have a meaningful life. But there's no mucking around. It means responsibility. It means that the decisions you make are important. It means that when you do something wrong, it's wrong. Well, do you want that? You don't want a factual description of every muscle twitch. You want them to distill their experiences down into the gist, 
which is the significance of the experience, and the significance of the experience is roughly what you can derive from listening to the experience that will change the way that you look at the world and act in the world. So it's valuable information, and they can tell you a terrible story, and that can be valuable because that can tell you how not to look in the world, look at the world and act in it, or they can tell you a positive story. You can derive benefit either way, which is why we also like to go watch stories about horrible psychopathic thugs, um, you know, and, and hopefully we're learning not to be like them, although there are additional advantages in that, you know, Someone who, you might be some, say that someone who is incapable of cruelty is a higher moral being than someone who is capable of cruelty. And I would say, and this follows Jung as well, that that's incorrect and it's dangerously incorrect because if you are not capable of cruelty, you are absolutely a victim to anyone who is. And so part of the reason that people go watch anti-heroes and villains is because there's a part of them crying out for the incorporation of the monster within them which is what gives them strength of character and self-respect because it's impossible to respect yourself until you grow teeth and if you grow teeth then you realize that you're somewhat dangerous and or maybe somewhat seriously dangerous and then you might be more willing to demand that you treat yourself with respect and other people do the same thing and so that doesn't mean that being cruel is better than not being cruel. What it means is that being able to be cruel and then not being cruel is better than not being able to be cruel. Because in the first case, you're nothing but weak and naive. And in the second case, you're dangerous, but you have it under control. And, you know, a lot of martial arts concentrate on exactly that as part of their philosophy of training. It's like, we're not training you to fight. We're training you to be peaceful and awake and avoid fights. But if you happen to have to get in one, and, and I guess the philosophy also is, is that if you're competent at fighting, that actually decreases the probability that you're going to have to fight because when someone pushes you, you'll be able to respond with confidence and with any luck, and this is certainly the case with bullies, with any luck, a reasonable show of confidence, which is very much equivalent to a show of dominance, is going to be enough to make the bully back off. And so the strength that you develop in your monstrousness is actually the best guarantee of peace. And that's partly why Jung believed that it was necessary for people to integrate their shadow. And he said that was a terrible thing for people to attempt because the human shadow, <clears throat> which is all those things about yourself that you don't want to realize, reaches all the way to hell. And what he meant by that was it's through an analysis of your own shadow that you can come to understand why other people are capable, and you as well, of the sorts of terrible atrocities that characterized, let's say, the 20th century. And without that understanding, there's no possibility of bringing it under control. When you study Nazi Germany, for example, or you study the Soviet Union, particularly under Stalin, and you're asking yourself, well, what are these perpetrators like? Forget about the victims, let's talk about the perpetrators. The answer is, they're just like you. And if you don't know that, that just means that you don't know anything about people, including yourself. And then it also means that you have to discover why they're just like you. And believe me, that's no picnic. So that's enough to traumatize people, and that's partly why they don't do it. And it's also partly why the path to enlightenment and wisdom is seldom trod upon, because if it was all a matter of following your bliss and doing what made you happy, then everyone in the world would be a paragon of wisdom, but it's not that at all. It's, the, it's a matter of facing the thing you least want to face. 
and everyone has that old, there's this old story in King Arthur where the knights go off to look for the Holy Grail, which is either the cup that Christ drank out of at the Last Supper or the cup into which the blood that gushed from his side was poured when he was crucified. The stories vary, but it's, it's basically a, a holy object, like the phoenix in some sense, that's representation, a representation of transformation. So it's, a, it's an ideal, and so King Arthur's knights, who sit at a round table because they're all roughly equal, go off to find the most valuable thing, and, they, and where do you look for the most valuable thing when you don't know where it is? Well, each of the knights looks at the forest surrounding the castle, and enters the forest at the point that looks darkest to him. And that's a good thing to understand because the gateway to wisdom and the gateway to the development of personality, which is exactly the same thing, is precisely through the portal that you do not want to climb through. And the reason for that is actually quite technical. This is a union presupposition too, is that, well, there's a bunch of things about you that are underdeveloped and a lot of those things are because there's things you've avoided looking at because you don't want to look at them, and there's parts of you you've avoided developing because it's hard for you to develop those parts. And so it's, it's by virtual necessity that what you need is where you don't want to look because that's where you've kept it. And so, and that's why there's, you know, an idiosyncratic element of it for everyone. Your particular place of enlightenment and terror is not going to be the same as yours, except that they're both places of enlightenment and terror. So they're equivalent at one level of analysis and and different at another. So anyways, back to fiction and, 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 and what it does. It, it distills truth and it, pr it, it produces characters that are composites. And the more they become composites, the more they approximate a mythological character. And so they become more and more universally true and more and more approximating religious deities. But the problem with that is they become more and more distant from individual experience. And so with literature, there's this very tight line where you need to make the character more than merely human, but not so much of a god that, you know, one of the things that happened to Superman in the 1980s, Superman started out, he's got a heavenly set of parents, but by the way, and an earthly set of parents, and he's an orphan like Harry Potter, very common theme, is that when Superman first emerged, he could only jump over buildings, you know, and maybe he could stop a locomotive, but by the time the 1980s rolled around, like he could juggle planets and, you know, swallow hydrogen bombs and, you know, he could do anything. Well, people stopped buying the Superman comics because how interesting is that? It's like something horrible happens and Superman deals with it. And, and something else horrible happens and Superman deals with it. And it's like, that's dull. He turned into such an archetype. He was basically the omniscient, omnipresent, um, om omnipotent god and that's no fun, it's like God wins, and then God wins again, and then again God wins, and you know. So then they had to weaken him in different ways with kryptonite, you know, so green kryptonite kind of made him sick, and red kryptonite, I think, kind of mutated him, if I remember correctly, and anyways, they had to introduce flaws into his character so that there could be some damn plot, and that's something to think about, you know. There's a deep existential lesson in that, in that your being is limited and, and flawed and, and fragile. Um, you're like the genie, which is genius in the little tiny, in the little tiny uh, lamp, you know, this immense potential, but constrained in this tiny little living space, as Robin Williams said when he played the genie in Aladdin. But the fact that you have limitations 
means that the plot of your life is the overcoming of those limitations and that if you didn't have limitations well there wouldn't be a plot and maybe there would be no life and so that's part of the reason why perhaps you have to accept the fact that you're flawed and insufficient and and live with it and consider it a precondition for being it's at least a reasonable it's a reasonable idea so anyways one of the main characters is the country, the known, the explored territory. We went over that a bit. And it always has two elements. I mean, your country is your greatest friend and your worst enemy, you know, because it squashes you into conformity and demands that you act in a certain manner and reduces your individuality to that element that's tolerated by everyone else. And it, it constrains your potential in a single direction. And so it's really tyrannical, but at the same time, it provides you with a, a place to be and all of the benefits that have accrued as a result of the actions of your ancestors and all the other people that you're associated with. So there's the good tyrant or the bad tyrant and the good king and those are archetypal figures and that's because they're always true and they're always true simultaneously. You know, which is partly why I object to the notion of the patriarchy because it's a myth law. It's the, it's the what do you call that? It's the apprehension of a mythological trope, which is that of the evil tyrant, without any appreciation for the fact that the archetype actually has two parts, and the other part is the wise king. And, you know, you can tell an evil tyrant story about culture, no problem, but it's one-sided, and, and that's very dangerous, because you don't want to forget all the good things that you have while you're criticizing all the ways that things are in error. That's a lack of gratitude, and it's a lack of wisdom and it's, it's founded in resentment, and it's, it's very dangerous, uh, both personally and socially. You know, if you take people, and I've told you this, and you expose them voluntarily to things that they are avoiding and are afraid of, you know, that they know they need to overcome in order to meet their goals, their self-defined goals, if you can teach people to stand up in the face of the things they're afraid of, they get stronger. And you don't know what the upper limits to that are, because you might ask yourself, like, if for 10 years, if you didn't avoid doing what you knew you needed to do, by, the by your own definitions, right, within the value structure that you've created to the degree that you've done that, what would you be like? Well, you know, there are remarkable people who come into the world from time to time, and there are people who do find out over decades-long periods what they could be like if they were who they were, if they said, if they spoke their being forward. And they get stronger and stronger and stronger, and we don't know the limits to that. We do not know the limits to that. And so you could say, well, in part, perhaps the reason that you're suffering unbearably can be left at your feet, because you're not everything you could be, and you know it. And of course, that's a terrible thing to admit, and it's a terrible thing to consider, but there's real promise in it, right? Because it means that perhaps there's another way that you could look at the world and another way that you could act in the world. So what it would reflect back to you would be much better than what it reflects back to you now. And then the second part of that is, well, imagine that many people did that. Because we've done a lot as human beings. We've done a lot of remarkable things. And I've told you already, I think, before that today, for example, about 250,000 people will be lifted out of abject poverty and about 300,000 people attached to the electrical power grid. We're making people, we're lifting people out of poverty collectively at a faster rate that's ever occurred in the history of humankind by a huge margin. And that's been going on unbelievably quickly since the year 2000. The UN had pl planned to have poverty between 2000 and 2015, and it was accomplished by 2013. 
So there's inequality developing in many places, and you hear lots of political agitation about that. But overall, the, the tide is lifting everyone up, and that's a great thing. And we have no idea how fast we can multiply that if people got their act together and really aimed at it. Because, you know, my, my experience is with people that we're probably running at about 51% of our capacity. Something, I mean, you can think about this yourselves. I often ask undergraduates how many hours a day you waste or how many hours a week you waste. And the classic answer is something like four to six hours a day. You know, inefficient studying, uh, watching things on YouTube that not only do you not want to watch, that you don't even care about, that make you feel horrible about watching after you're done. That's probably four hours right there. You know, you think, well, that's 20, 25 hours a week. It's 100 hours a month. That's two and a half full work weeks. It's half a year of work weeks per year. And if your time is worth $20 an hour, which is a radical underestimate, it's probably more like 50 if you think about it in terms of deferred wages. If you're wasting 20 hours a week, you're wasting $50,000 a year. And you are doing that right now. And it's because you're young, wasting $50,000 a year is a way bigger catastrophe than it would be for me to waste it because I'm not going to last nearly as long. And so if your life isn't everything it could be, you could ask yourself, well, what would happen if you just stopped wasting the opportunities that are in front of you? You'd be, who knows how much more efficient? 10 times more efficient. 20 times more efficient. That's the Pareto distribution. You have no idea how efficient, efficient people get. It's completely, it's off the charts. Well, and if we all got our act together collectively and stopped making things worse, because that's another thing people do all the time, not only do they not do what they should to make things better, they actively attempt to make things worse because they're spiteful or resentful or arrogant or deceitful or, or homicidal or genocidal or all of those things all bundled together in an absolutely pathological package. If people stopped really, really trying just to make things worse, we have no idea how much better they would get just because of that. So there's this weird dynamic that's part of the existential system of ideas between human vulnerability, social judgment, both of which are, 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 are major causes of suffering, and the failure of individuals to adopt the responsibility that they know they should adopt. And that's the thing that's interesting too, is that, and like one of the, another thing I've often asked my undergraduate classes is, you know, there's this idea that, that people have, that people have a conscience. And you know what the conscience is. It's, it's this feeling or voice you have in your head just before you do something that you know is stupid, telling you that probably you shouldn't do that stupid thing. You don't have to listen to it, strangely enough. But you go ahead and do it anyways, and then, of course, exactly what the conscience told you was going to happen inevitably happens so that you feel even stupider about it than you would if it happened by accident. Because you, you know, I knew this was going to happen, I got a warning it was going to happen, and I went and did it anyways. And the funny thing, too, is that that conscience operates within people, and we really don't understand what the hell that is. So you might say, well, what would happen if you abided by your conscience for five years or for ten years? What sort of position might you be in? What sort of family might you have? What sort of relationship might you be able to forge? And you can be bloody sure that a relationship that's forged on the basis of who you actually are is going to be a lot stronger and more welcome than one that's forged on the basis of who you aren't. Now, of course, that means that the person you're with has to deal with the full force of you in all your ability and your catastrophe, and that's a very, very difficult thing to negotiate. But if you do negotiate it, well, at least you, you have something, you have somewhere solid to stand, and you have somewhere to live, you have a real life. And it's a great basis 
upon which to bring children into the world, for example, because you can have an actual relationship with them instead of torturing them half to death, which is what happens in a, tremendous, a tremendously large minority of cases. Well, it's more than that, too, because, and this is what I'll close with, and this is why I wanted to introduce Solzhenitsyn's writings to you, you see, because it isn't merely that your fate depends on whether or not you get your act together and to what degree you decide that you're going to live out your own genuine being. It isn't only your fate. It's the fate of everyone that you're networked with. And so, you know, you think, well, there's 9 billion, 7 billion people in the world. We're going to peak at about 9 billion, by the way, and then it'll decline rapidly. But 7 billion people in the world, and who are you? You're just one little dust moat among that 7 billion. And so it really doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but that's simply not the case. It's the wrong model, because you're at the center of a network. You're a node in a network. Of course, that's even more true now that we have social media. You'll, you, you'll know a thousand people, at least over the course of your life. And they'll know a thousand people each, and that puts you one person away from a million, and two persons away from a billion. And so that's how you're connected. And the things you do, they're like dropping a stone in a pond. The ripples move outward, and they affect things in ways that you can't fully comprehend. And it means that the things that you do and that you don't do are far more important than you think. And so if you act that way, of course, the terror of realizing that is that it actually starts to matter what you do. And you might say, well, that's better than living a meaningless existence. It's better for it to matter. But I mean, if you really asked yourself, would you be so sure if you had the choice? I can live with no responsibility whatsoever. The price I pay is that nothing matters. Or I can reverse it and everything matters. But I have to take the responsibility that's associated with that. It's not so obvious to me that people would take the meaningful path. Now, when you say, well, nihilists suffer dreadfully because there's no meaning in their life and they still suffer, yeah, but the advantage is they have no responsibility. So that's the payoff, and I actually think that's the motivation. Say, well, I can't help being nihilistic. All my belief systems have collapsed. It's like, yeah, maybe. Maybe you've just allowed them to collapse because it's a hell of a lot easier than acting them out. And the price you pay is some meaningless suffering, but you can always whine about that and people will feel sorry for you, and you have the option of taking the pathway of the martyr, so that's a pretty good deal, all things considered, especially when the when the alternative is to bear your burden properly and to live forthrightly in the world. Well, what Solzhenitsyn figured out, and so many people in the 20th century, it's not just him, even though he's the best example, is that if you live a pathological life, you pathologize your society. And if enough people do that, then it's hell. Really. Really. And you can read the Gulag Archipelago if you have the fortitude to do that, and you'll see exactly what hell is like. And then you can decide if that's a place you'd like to visit, or even more importantly, if it's a, light, if it's a place you'd like to visit and take all your family and friends. Because that's what happened in the 20th century.